Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening The Trip to Italy, Cavalry, The Grand Seduction, The Fault in Our Stars, and Boyhood, among other films. On Thursday, September 11th, the Eat Mills Writers Festival presents Scott Merritt, Sandro Perry, Carl Wilson, Shawn Michaels, and Golden Throats Karaoke for a music and literature event at the E-Bar called Taste and Transmission. And on Tuesday, September 16th, in the Green Room, Professor Stephen Hennigan launches his new book, Sandino's Nation, Literature and Revolution in Nicaragua. Also on Tuesday, September 16th, Fearing and White play the E-Bar. The bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Visit bookshelf.ca for more information. Very excited about this show. It's a chat with Scott Merritt. He's an old friend of mine. I kind of met Scott, as you'll hear, I met Scott through his son, John, really, John Merritt. Uh, When he was, John was just a little kid. He used to play music, and I was playing music at the same time, and uh, I was much older than John, but I got to know his dad and his mom, and Scott Merritt is a songwriting legend and sort of underground music circles uh, throughout uh, Canada, and he hasn't made a new record in 12 years, but he's playing a show in Guelph on Thursday, September 11th at the E-Bar, along with Sandro Perry, and there's going to be a literature component as well. Carl Wilson is going to be reading... You remember Carl Wilson and Shawn Michaels? They were on the show some months ago talking about their their books. Well, they're going to do some reading and chatting, and, and then Sandro Perry's going to play, and Scott's going to play, and Scott, as you'll hear hasn't put out a new record since 2002, and people were wondering about it. Well, there's news about that on the episode. You're even going to hear a brand new song. So, very exciting. Here it is, myself and Scott Merritt. The 
The Eden Mills Writers Festival is gearing up for its 2014 program, which runs September 11th to 15th, both in the city of Guelph and just 10 minutes east in the beautiful village of Eden Mills. Confirmed authors and musicians include Eleanor Catton, Lynn Cody, David Adam Richards, Miriam Taves, Anne Michaels, Heather O'Neill, Terry Fallis, Scott Merritt, Sandro Perry, Sean Michaels, Carl Wilson, and many more. There's also the 100-Story Wood Workshop, which unites Canadian authors and high school students for a day of writing on Monday, September 15th. For more information and to purchase tickets or sign up for workshops, please visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. at the cottage I don't know either it's been a while yeah uh, no it's work in progress it's still a work in progress Uh, they're mixing Nick Chelios is mixing uh, somebody today so it's good to be back here instead of there but it's generally good to be here than over there (laughs) yeah no it's a lovely view you've lived in Guelph for how long Uh, I guess 17, 18 years, possibly, yeah. And what brought you here? Um, Well, John, I guess, was part of it, and and also what I was up to. Oh, sorry. That's okay. And also what I was up to. (laughs) Uh, John was just, uh, you know, just beyond toddling, and uh, the town in Brantford where we were living where we were living started to feel a little uh, a little claustrophobic or mm. and um, and also this the cottage thing was just sort of getting legs and uh, it was also a limitation where we were located you know in a way and so I just started looking around various towns around Brantford and uh, the attraction was largely that whenever I came to Guelph to sort of scout out places, there was all these neat places uh, with, uh, you know, I just liked the way the houses were laid out in the yards, and there were these often outbuildings behind uh, houses. Like kind of like sh- uh, sheds and Sheds stuff. and stuff. I thought, oh, that'd be neat if we could find someplace like that. 
And the other thing I noticed was was uh, that, that there was uh, every time I came here I got lost, which I thought was a good sign, you know, because didn't I could never get the feel of how the town was laid out. <laughs> and you saw this as a virtue. I thought that it was a great virtue, yeah, you know, because I knew Branford so well, yeah, you know. So that was that was an <laughs> advantage. And the, this place uh, came up, which was you know, had the advantage of looking like the downstairs could be used for a studio, uh, so no outbuilding. So we thought it would be a good fit. So, so far, so good. 17, 18 years, so that's about the same time I've been here. I Is think. that right? I came here for undergraduate studies. It's a university town, for those who don't know. In, yeah, 1996. And so you were here around the same time? Yeah, around the same time, yeah. yeah. And and Might you're in ninety seven maybe? Yeah. No, it's I'm just John was in grade five. And you and I really met because of John. I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean yeah. we I'm sure that would have been the reason, yeah. Your son John plays drums and at the time when did he was in the Bar Mitzvah Brothers. Yeah. Who somehow I saw play. Um and how old would he have been? I don't know when they he well he again I'm uh, I guess I I go more not so much by age but by what grade he was in right I'd say he was maybe in grade seven or eight yeah he, so he would have been like eleven or twelve no is that right no 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 like grade eight would be fourteen no I'm trying to think when yeah. I was in grade nine I think I was thirteen well you you were an advanced type of person. no maybe is that right. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. I thought grade 11, you're 16 roughly, I think. Yeah. So grade 10, you're 15. Grade 9, yeah, 13, 14. I'm a December kid. So oh. I was was the youngest guy in my class. Oh, okay. So yeah. I think uh is it possible he was, he was 13? Okay. <laughs> that's a, Let's go with 13. It's not a fact-checking kind of conversation <laughs> necessarily. I just uh I was initially uh baffled by the Bar Mitzvah Brothers. I yeah. think as people always are, a little bit, they were a unique band. But it was so inspiring to see young kids playing music like that, and, and we did everything. Us older people tried to encourage that as much as we could. Yeah. But um, did you have, was was John's interest in music, I assume, it stems from being uh, around you yeah, and your... Maybe, you know, you sort of... Yeah, he always hung out around the top of the stairs, especially when drummers were around, hmm. and uh, at the old place. And he would uh, set up these. <laughs> I think of it. He set up these little restaurants, John's Cafe, <laughs> at the top of the stairs for when musicians came upstairs. You know. Yeah. And he would uh, sell various dishes that he had uh, cooked up. But he cooked them up with Play-Doh, so they were, they were not really edible. It was all very just much fiction in his mind. But now that I think of it, that was great. <laughs> He's, he, he always struck me as the most uh, fascinating member of the band, which was a... So there was Jenny Mitchell's in the band and Jordy Gordon and at the time probably Jillian Manford and, and a few other people, but the core was kind of John, Jenny... And Jordy. And Jordy, and... Mm. and, and yeah, John, we would so I would drive them around. I was like the road manager. Is that what you were doing? <laughs> Did you not know what your kid was up to? <laughs> no, no. Some strange guy driving a, around in a, a van. van yeah, in a, a scary van. Yeah, Ray Mitchell's 
classic uh, thrift store. You were the vans. only one they knew with a license, probably. Yeah, I think it wasn't that they and liked you were me. Game. Yeah, I don't know why I was so interested in. I mean, I was that was my culture too. Was traveling around playing shows and in bands, and we would play together often. Right. I think so. It was just maybe. It was it was social and it was convenient. We were all kind of doing the same thing, but yeah, John would be like often in his own world, um, huh. and he would bring. We were in Windsor once, and you know, while Jenny in particular was trying to act up in terms of her age, you know, get closer to us, I'd look over and John would be like playing with his soldiers <laughs> and have these intricate battle sequences going on and oh, yeah. clearly like it was like chess. Yeah. There was a lot going on in that kid's head and uh, yeah, yeah. he's, uh, I, I don't know, I wonder if that comes from, well, I mean, so this obviously stems a little bit from his upbringing. Uh, you know, yeah, we might have played a part in all that, but he was... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he was always, we were always inventing things, you know, when he was, I'd spend the afternoons with him often, and we, you know, we'd make little imaginary worlds, but I figured that's just, I was just doing the stuff that I wish my parents would have done with me, you know, so yeah. I was sort of trying to try it as much as possible. And the other thing we did, which, you know, was music related, I guess, was it was sort of, we banned or I guess they put a moratorium on kids' music in the house, and we we <laughs> made the most out of out of real music as using that and trying to get uh, play around those, you know, like play around Van Morrison or or play around Tom Waits, you know, as opposed to uh, having some chirpy high voice with. <laughs> <laughs> Robin's in the background telling you about where you are. And I did the same thing. My son's three. And, you know, we go back and forth on it. Um, but it did dawn on me at some point that I, for better or for worse, he is going to be into whatever we're into. And so initially, I think we took that route of like, well, we should probably play music by, you know, Fred Penner, Raffi, wiggles and he whatever you give a kid at that point they're obsessed with it yeah and so i gradually when we were driving we'd have to listen to these things but i gradually was like i kind of just want to listen to a replacements record or the ramones or whatever and he loved it and like i think he was just like oh the car makes other sounds right the stereo right. makes other sounds i didn't know and so right right for better or for worse now and i don't know if you went through this because you're teaching your kid about tom waits and and whoever else, Van Morrison, on some level, when they get into the their real world, the social world of other kids, when I'm when my kid knows the words to the first five Ramones albums, <laughs> right. I'm trying to think about what kind of social capital he has <laughs> in a playground where other kids are like, "What? Yeah. Why are you listening to all this old music by these weird people?" And, and what did you listen to as a kid? Yeah, I have no well. My cousin Anand, uh, I he was uh, I made him part of my wedding party, and we, uh, which I don't think he really understood, necessarily. We never talked about it, but um, he, when I was four, he introduced me. He had all these tapes. He had the Police, and he had Love and Rockets. This was the eighties. Yeah. Um, eighty two, I guess. I, I, 80, yeah, eighty two, eighty three. So he had all these tapes, but he had this Beatles tape, and it was like a, I think it was like one of those. Beatles play rock and roll. It was like a compilation. It wasn't even an album. 
but he played it and I was just like what the hell is this at like four I just remember hearing the Beatles for the first time which you know I get the Beatles I who I, yeah, it seems yeah. like a weird or an obvious yeah you yeah, know but but there's something about weirdly I mean you know any era any age like I, I think I heard the Beatles so I so what age is this now? So I was four. Four. Holy crow. Yeah. I was four when I, four or five, I think. And I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I don't know. I didn't really make note of it. But when I think back, it must have been around that time. And yeah, I heard that. And he had U2 tapes. And this was my mm. first real introduction to music. And I looked up to him. So I was just immediately infatuated with the Beatles. And would, mm. I remember the first tape I bought at a Kmart was like the Beatles ballads. Huh. Another another compilation. I didn't get into the records for some reason. Hmm. And yeah, I had an early interest in music. I used to, uh, my dad had records and he had a Dean Martin Christmas album. And I would put on concerts with a tennis racket. I would, for Dean Martin? Whatever the records were, they'd right. be playing. And I just, that one I got into. Right. And I don't remember anything about it now. And I would oh. play with a, I would air lip sync right. with a tennis racket. And my parents looked at me. And within a few weeks, I was in tennis lessons. <laughs> it's ridiculous that's not what I meant no <laughs> I meant but it is interesting <laughs> so do you remember what your earliest musical infatuations oh, yeah, very, were in memories very vividly like well like the earliest the earliest ones were just imaginary things imaginary and I don't know what would have inspired them but um, I have the earliest recollections, like if you're going back to four, that would have been Pi played in elastic bands that my I'm sure my mother would have hooked up. Yeah. And, um, you know, making as if it were a guitar and it's just strumming it and making up tunes, you know, like singing on top of it. I have no idea what... I have no recollection of what it was, but I know that was sort of the first instrument. And then, um, but as far as like eyes opening, like you're describing with, you know, the stuff you're listening to in the 80s would have been uh, probably not till grade five or so when um, I met Stanley Plachenik, who was a, an 18-year-old guy that was in grade five. <laughs> yeah, come and, on. <laughs> uh, he would, no, he wasn't 18. He was maybe 16. He was driving. He could drive to school. And I was in grade five. It was split class. He was in grade six. He had been held back so many times. He played trumpet in a band called Blues Syndicate. Oh. And I'm not sure what what his um, exactly what his, his whole story was, but I wonder about him much a lot these uh, these days. So you were where he's at. you were in grade five. Uh, yeah, it was grade five, and he he knew I had for some reason I had um, was involved in something that was going on at the school, playing guitar and a you know just strum strum guitar in a class. Anyways, he for some reason he took me on as a sort of a to be my mentor of some kind, and took me back to his place one night after school and no one was home at his place and he played uh, played Foxy Lady and Manic Depression for me and uh, 
I, I really did. I, I think of it all the time as being a like a an A bomb. You know, it was really like everything changed. Yeah. Like in in a matter of really the first couple of notes. You know, you hear of those things and you say, yeah. "This is like nothing." You know, this was like nothing I've heard anywhere, right. but it's still music. You know. So that would be the the two the two things I'd say about starting anyways if I if you know if I were asked. I don't wanna put too fine a point on this because life is funny and strange and weird, but it does strike me that you were drawn to a kid that was six, seven years older than you, probably at that time maybe. Huh. Yeah. And so was John. John was huh. drawn to these people that in music in a musical realm too. Is that right? Uh, well, I think so. Yeah, I, yeah, mean, I guess we, that's we, true. We were hanging out. I was probably eight or nine. I think I'm eight or nine years older than John. I don't know how old John is. I can't remember, but yeah. And and I'm not just counting me. Like so, there was a whole circle of these adults that were taking the Bar Mitzvah Brothers into different, you know, yeah. talk, going to meetings with labels and like we just ended up in these weird parental managerial roles or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's funny that. I never thought of that. That's it's true. It's quite interesting that you might, uh, you might have a, a, a yeah, more in common than I think <laughs> with my own flesh and blood. Well, there's, there's a, a definitely. I think um, the two of you, well, you. I mean, I think in your work, there's a, there's an interest. I don't know that it's a fixation, but in the fantastical, in the imaginary worlds, mm. um. You know, taking I, I find a lot of the work that I've heard of yours is observational, but it's also on a different level. Like oh. trying to think of oh, I I think I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, and so there's this kind of it's not an alternate reality or or anything, but it is a ideal reality. Uh <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was going to say it doesn't strike me as fictional. You know, but the, I guess that's part of the thing of of uh just you know on this side of the on this side of the question yeah. uh, y- y- you you uh you believe it to yeah. the point where you can actually try to write it right yeah 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 and I, I mean so you have to see it and it in that and in order to see it it has to be at some level real i think yeah you know? well you're a storyteller and i i, I, I guess think so you do you think of yourself as a storyteller yeah, you know, I don't. I I I must be in. You know, I don't really. I don't really have a clear view hmm. of of that. I mean, I think there's narratives always going on. Like, uh, so yeah, I guess in that level. But the the narratives are not really like car chase scenes and stuff going on, right? It's very. I find to be very vivid detail-oriented lyricism and the music you're clearly drawn and i want to get into where these influences maybe come from but you're clearly drawn to strange sounds or just like they're 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 pop pop frameworks in in a lot of ways but they you seem you have an ear for odd off-kilter sounds i'd say in my observation Mm -hmm. it's getting too heavy for you all of a sudden no (laughs) (laughs) i'm just trying to break you down here for people but no. is that is that a is that, that no that that's that's I'd go with that sure you have a pension for this yeah I, I I I've again and that would go right back to Hendrix you know yeah. the the sound is 
um, is multi-dimensional and it's still musical. You know that it, it's not uh, commonly you don't you can't put your finger on it. Yeah, but it's still can illustrate something. I think that's fantastic. It's the same thing that that we sort of pick up occasionally at the jazz festival here in town. The Guelph Jazz Festival definitely is all about that, I think. All about the uh, really pushing the boundaries of what you think is possible. With like any uh, the people that blow you away the most, and I think you're you're definitely among them, is someone who can take an instrument that you think you know, and show you something you don't. Mm. And I think that that's something that you seem drawn to. Like pushing, pushing things a little. Uh, yeah. Well, pushing. I'd be honest, pushing myself too, because I I do get a little bit. Uh, the the thing, if you can, there's a saying, if you can say what it is, don't do it. And I sort of, I think I'm a little bit uh, driven by that idea, you know. Say Just a it, little say, bit, say, like say, not not say, fully. Like yeah. it's, I'm not committed to this you know completely be uh 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 obtuse or something no and i don't think that you're yeah with with your there are people that try these things and i think it's obvious that they're trying (laughs) but i think that there is an effort the things that i think that your fans are drawn to is the kind of I hate using. I keep using the word organic, and it just makes me hungry. <laughs> but I, this sort of natural, effortless exploration. You seem like an explorer in your work, if that makes I, sense. I, I think you know. I mean, I, I think that's uh, true, and it's not like not like uh, I'm not out to prove anything that that. Yeah, I'm really just out. Like in the particularly in the studio. There's lots of things I do that just, to me, they just don't work. And other people hear them and they say, well, that's that's neat, you know. But I hear it and I say, but it has nothing to do with the, the song, you know, this sound. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, so it, I'm very fussy that way. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's really, until it makes sense to me on a personal level somehow... Uh, I don't really, I can't really get behind it, you know? Yeah. And so it makes it, uh, it can make it uh, such a slow process sometimes, but I got nothing to really to lose. I think it's a fine line between trying to do something that transcends the mundane, yet also makes sense, you know? Like, there's, there's one thing, it's one thing for something to be wild and, and strange and exhilarating, but... I think what you're saying is that that same thing should have, in some way, should have some practical purpose in what you're doing. That's a good way of putting it, actually. I mean, it's clear. Uh, <laughs> it's a clear way of putting least, it. At least, yeah. I was thinking of Bram- Brantford, Ontario. I'm from Cambridge, Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, originally, which is, I don't know, half an hour away, yeah. something like that. And we used to go to... I was obsessed with Brantford. Um, because really? Yeah, I was. Brantford, for those who don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you live there. Working class town. Yeah. For a long time, uh, uh, industry left, and it was really crippled, I yeah, think. completely. But I knew it because Wayne Gretzky was from there, and mm. he was my favorite hockey player. So we would go on school trips, and we and <laughs> perhaps most significantly, Alexander Graham Bell 
What, did he live there? Or did he invent the telephone in Brantford? I think he had a, a cottage there or something. There's I, a house. You can go and see his house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that where you went? We would go on the school trips. Okay, yeah. And as we were coming into Brantford on, well, I guess it's Highway 24, right? Mm-hmm. You get to a, way before you get to downtown, for the longest time there was a Wolco. Yep. And I think at one point it was a Woolworths. I think it was the same. That Wolco is where Wayne Gretzky's mom bought him the... She bought sprinklers to make the ice rink in the backyard. Wow. So everyone... I would be staring out the school bus window at a Wolko. We had Wolkos in Cambridge, (laughs) but I was just obsessed (laughs) with Wolko. That's the Wolko. That's the Wolko. I'm pretty sure that's the Wolko. And so we would go... uh, You know, we'd be on our way to downtown, and I'd just be longingly, you know... That's crazy. Head craned back at this Wolko, and we'd go in there sometimes on family trips and I'd just be like this is the Wilco <laughs> this is ground zero for Gretzky wow I could be wrong about this but I'm pretty sure that in his autobiography which I believe is called Gretzky <laughs> Wayne talks about that Wilco so I think I was just like holy cow so um, anyway I knew Brantford for Gretzky and the telephone um, what was your experience like growing up there because I'm curious if if that upbringing um sort of informs what you're doing now oh, and, and your kind of escapism. If, if, we, if we can call okay. your work escapism in any way. Okay. Hmm. You see where I'm going with this? I, I, I see it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we could debate the escapist thing a yes, little bit. But, sure. um, no, I see what you're saying. Um, the town, like you said, is was really industrial. It was completely a manufacturing town. There was, there was a Mohawk college there. Um, and a very s- small, very small effect on the town as far as um, the majority of people and how they made their living. The Mohawk College was kind of like a vocational school, well, or well, like a, you know, Hamilton's is extension of the Hamilton College. So yeah, you know, yeah. You're going uh, into, I mean, like any school, really. I feel like university in in Canada, in university, you're kind of. It's more abstract. In some some degrees, it's like, I'm doing English. And you're like, well, yeah. what are you going to do with that? But you go to Mohawk, you might be, you know, you take a, a, a trade. Practical, yeah. Yeah, like a trade. Practical tra- apl- applying to. Which these days, I think, might have been a more sensible option for myself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, so right. you went to, so Mo- it's, it wasn't a college town per se, but it had a no, college. It, it had a little college, but didn't have much of an effect, as I guess, so yeah, my, my, I always had a, uh, eventually it, it developed this sort of feeling that any place with a university had was chances there would be real gigs for what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For some reason. I never I never thought that out of the box, but it eventually became apparent that was the case. That's where the, you know, the cafes and uh, songwriter places were for some whatever reasons. But... Um, so Brantford had that feeling, uh, uh, didn't have that feeling. It was uh, very, very rare that uh, music would happen outside of the high school. You know, the high school bands would come in, but that would be, uh, generally speaking... Were they actually high school bands? Or didn't like Rush play a yeah, bunch of high school? It was bands yeah, yeah, would yeah, come yeah, to your yeah, high school. Those yeah. Days, yeah, I guess you clarify because that completely doesn't happen anymore i guess no but like i think at a point there was a point where like alice cooper would play our high school or something maybe that's too big but that'd be a bit (laughs) much for our our school anyways 
But did you see anyone of significance? I would have seen uh, Rush. I would have seen uh, Max Webster a number of times, probably. Um, featuring Kim Mitchell? Yeah, featuring Kim Mitchell. And in those days, they were doing uh, pretty outside stuff for what we were used to. Um, there were bands like Breathless, which I think had a... I think Breathless... I believe you could maybe correct me, but I think Nash the Slash, it was oh, one yeah. of his first bands, I think. The recently deceased Nash the Slash. Yeah. He just passed away. Yeah. Um, so there was some stuff going on that way, but it was really like uh, barely a glimpse compared to what you could find at the record store, you know. And, yeah. And Eventually, the town sort of closed up because all the factories, one by one, sort of all disappeared, and and so that, compl- that it just became a you know a f- grew darker and darker in my eyes. Anyways, what was the main industry in Brantford? Was it automobile? No, it was farm machinery. Uh, oh, Massey, okay. Massey Ferguson was the main one. White Farm was the other. But there was countless other industries like. Spalding had a factory there. Um, the ball people? S- yeah. Like the people that make the yeah, basketballs? Yeah. yeah. Um, Harding carpets. It, on and on, like mm-hmm. uh, literally uh, dozens of factories. And then any, any summer you needed a, a job, you'd just go out for the afternoon, throw in applications, you know. At these places? At any one of these places. And, you know, you'd be probably working within a week or two, you know. It would be, um, it was easy pickings and really you could see how it was a really easy lifestyle to sort of slip into. This was the 70s? Yeah, so 70, let's say, yeah, early 70s. Yeah, okay. Yeah, early to mid-70s. And did you finish, did you go to high, you went to high school? Yeah. And you finished? Yeah. And yeah. did you go to post-secondary? Didn't do anything after So, that. So after high school, were you doing these jobs? Uh, I would do jobs in the summers, generally when I was in high school. When yeah. I was in high school, yeah. Okay. And when I finished school, I just basically, I was going to go to, um, Guelph was a possibility, it was it, I'd been accepted in a couple of arts programs, but I broke the news to my folks that I was going to actually kick the can with music for a year and yeah. see how that went. And uh, it was difficult because everybody else in the family had gone on to school. So I've always sort of felt um, a little bit like the, uh, you know, Almost felt a little bit like it was a bit of a disappointment to the <laughs> to the folks. Yeah, it's a societal thing. I think no matter what, when you go into the arts and you live modestly, I think you can't help but feel a little scared. Let some well, yeah, and let you potentially you're not necessarily doing a real thing. You know, we've been talking yeah. about reality and alternate reality and imagination, and I think in some ways we live in imagination forever or something when you do this sort of stuff, mm. um, and that's healthy for us but you know not so good for when your in-laws spend three weeks with you you realize <laughs> that maybe you you feel like everything you've done is a mistake oh oh yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't know were your parents uh probably i can have had a number of conversations with people about this sort of stuff yeah. so i assume when you tell your parents this they are probably more concerned i mean were, was there any element of support 
not much at first. Yeah. You know, not much at first. You know, they 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 didn't you know, they were uh the support, I guess, yeah, I I, I shouldn't say not much is the right answer. <laughs> there was support though in that they let me live at the house still. It wasn't yeah. like they, you know, said Okay, go out into the real world, kid, and see what happens right. in two weeks, let alone six months or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to their credit, they did that. But I I remember every night my father would come home, and he worked. He was very dedicated to um, supporting the family and the whole the whole um, generational thing of being the breadwinner, and he would. You know, we didn't see him for a lot of those years because he would work for him. He'd be up before us and home just in time for dinner and bed, basically, for him to get up and do it the next day. So anyways, when, you know, uh, he would come home from work during that first year that I was sort of just trying to do stuff. And he'd, he would say pretty much every other night, so, you know, what did you do today? You know, that's all he needed to say, and was sort of always it's like a brand. And isn't the it amazing? End. It's such a minimal, like syntax. Yeah. How much meaning? Like it's like yeah, when a parent says so loaded. Yeah, a parent can say like the most. It sounds if you read it on paper, most benign thing, but it's so loaded. Yeah. What did you do today? Yes. It's also the tone. Yes. Where the where the where the. <laughs> the sharp note is <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> what did you do today? so you've got this and so this obviously stayed with you and what were you doing in your days at that point were you writing just writing I was, songs I was writing and I was trying to I was trying to play better I was yeah. trying to so I would I had this elaborate exercises set up for for um, playing and, and sort of time it was like uh, kind of like physical exercise in a way part of the day and part of the day was just using the telephone to try to see what it, the lay of the land is even, you know. Cause it Invented was by Alexander Graham Bell. Yes, Just yes. Using a hometown invention. Yeah. Yes. Was, <laughs> what do you mean? You were calling out to... I'd call out to, you know, random clubs that I saw had songwriters playing yeah. in them, you know, and seeing what existed. And uh, kind of anything, you know, anything you, at all. Were you always... So initially, were you like a more of a folk artist, yeah, so to speak? Yeah, it's that's well. Were you ever in bands or anything? I had to, yeah. I started in the garage band sort of thing for through school, and right up through um, the end of school, basically, had a band, and we would play at grade school graduations around town and blood donor clinics and uh you know knights of columbus events blood donor clinics yeah <laughs> that that was that common that no well yeah, we were for bands to play a blood donor clinic no i i think well music would be they would entertain they'd entertain all the these people, people who are just like uh yeah lying in their beds <laughs> they need donuts right. and cookies and music in, yeah and to Jimmy get them Hendrix back covers yeah so what was the band called it was called max rat was Max it Rat influenced by Max Webster? No, it was before Max Webster. Oh, okay. Well, you know, like well before Max oh, Rat okay. started. When I was, you know, shortly after Stanley Plachenik had introduced okay. me to Jimi Hendrix. So Max Rat and you were playing Hendrix covers and yeah, other obsessions of the time. Whatever the sort of heavy rock stuff, you right? Know, Black Sabbath eventually. And was there a moment where you realized this was songwriting 
was a thing you could do? No, I think it felt very bogus to me eventually. Like it, it felt like we were, you know, like the covers were very loose. They were they were very undisciplined and oh, and the uh, the singer. You, I could tell the guy that was singing in the band. I don't think he really knew any of the words, you know. <laughs> but I think there was a lot of mumbling going on in the in the front. And it's not like anyone that we were playing to would have known these songs anyways, you know, most, you know, I mean, most of the people at the Blood Owners Clinic were well into their, you know, middle 20s or something. Yeah. So, uh we could get away with a lot or I felt like we were getting away with a lot, and that sort of bugged me eventually. That bugged you enough to be like, I'm going to try something on my own? It That's kind of what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd listened to a, a few people that I realized. Uh, you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And you're sort of getting into the you know, middle of the 70s, I worked in a record store and listened to, um, and the guy was obsessed with Leo Kotke. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I started to hear more solo people and the amount of dimension to that, just that kind of playing. And um, so I started thinking, yeah, these, you know, you take, it seemed to be much more... um, another step somehow you know I, and once you sort of get that into your head it's hard to let go of it when you're that age was the record store in Brand, Brantford in a mall yes the one that I worked in was did it become, Records and did it become a Sunrise Records it did I used to go we used to go to Brantford when Ticketmaster tickets would go on sale mm-hmm. when we would skip school because it was the, one of the nearest ticket outlets and we we were naive and we just I mean, now now I know how to buy tickets. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily well, drive somewhere and well, think that was the best. Quite that simple. I don't even That's think true. in the eighties. That's right? true. You had to go to the outlet and 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 uh, line up and be there right. on time to see REM or whoever you wanted to go see. So you would, yeah. I just remember we would go to Brant. We would totally on our spare in high school go get tickets for stuff. And uh, yeah. so yeah, that's probably the story. The you same were. store, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, the owner had long gone since then. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, yeah. so the folk music circuit you were in at the time. I mean, did you stick? You, you probably. I would think your music st- stuck out in the folk circles. Well, it was, uh, yeah, because uh, I didn't really know uh, obviously what I was doing, you know. But I, uh, and the influences were, you know, the things that I'd 
was amalgamating or putting together, putting in the stew yeah. were, uh, you know, kind of fuzzy at best, right? Yeah. It was very yeah. fuzzy sources <laughs> I was drawing from. And, um, I mean, I guess that's part of the problem was that I kind of loved everything, you know, mm-hmm, when I first mm-hmm. heard it and... And would try to incorporate into yeah, what you were I'd doing? Yeah, try to put it... Oh, yeah, that's right. Put a fuzz pedal on this, too. <laughs> yeah, but in the... F- folk clubs it wasn't very it was hard going too you know i mean i was really too young and there was a bit of a scene it was pretty established there was a guys a generation ahead of me uh that were maybe a bit more than a generation ahead of me you know but you would go to toronto and that circuit the college towns you know yeah yeah there there was place in london called change of pace Hmm. there was a place in kingston um called um was that called bitter grounds i think it was called um, bitter grounds bitter grounds yeah it's kind of coffee thing yeah <laughs> coffee houses you know? coffee houses yeah okay and it was like that refuge for for songwriters it right. was fantastic it was like a a, a a very attentive crowd so everything was you know everything you did was sort of heard and it was um nerve-wracking but uh but I, anyways i didn't that didn't come easily at all like yeah. getting getting into those places it, the gen, it was pretty established who was playing in them they were very nice people very kind and they were hippies you know yeah and uh but at the same time you know you're just a kid so uh i'd sort of was really at the point i think I don't know if it's true entirely, but I think I was at the point where I was giving up when I said, I'll do this one gig. Like the one gig I got where it was sort of the end of the line. It was this. You didn't feel like you were. I didn't feel like I'd done any. It had been a year and nothing was really. There was no circuit to play. There was no agencies. There was no management things. Yeah. Uh, it was not. Uh, it was a wilderness and I was, you know. 18 or 19 years old and nothing was going on and I was had parents what did you do today son yeah right you know and uh, I went to this one club that said yeah I come down in, in Hamilton a place called the night two coffee house and uh, said, come down you know we have a we have a pay or play night you just you know if you pay if you play you don't pay and that's the deal Oh, oh, this is progress, you know. So, <laughs> so I drove down. I was very cynical, and I, I uh, went with a friend, and uh, and everything sort of changed after that. That was like this little club, and I looked in, and it was like maybe thirty people. It really was a tiny, tiny room, and uh, and um, the guy that ran it called me the next day, and invited me back to do an opening spot it was like you know a little and then everything sort of just grew quite you know slow but and small but at least it felt like there was something going on you know like well i think when you get that when someone and you know outside of your circle of friends or someone pays attention to you and encourages you that's a huge boost right particularly after struggling for so long i mean what was the trajectory from that moment and the, those opportunities to starting to work with the labels that you would end up working with? Um, well, I made a couple of records 
I eventually, you know, let's see, I, I can't get the timeline completely straight, so... But I uh, played, you know, I did these opening sets for a while, played the coffee house, got in one coffee house. You do one place, you would, the other people would, yeah, it was a small about community, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was all telephones and, mm-hmm. you know, it was a couple of folk festivals that, you know, took a chance and uh, I grew a beard so I'd look a little bit older. <laughs> How uh, old were you? Well, you know, I was 19, 19. or 20, yeah, okay. you know, yeah. I guess. And... uh so, I uh, there was a studio in Hamilton that was uh, I he- always heard about among the songwriters that were making records. There weren't a lot of us, lo- weren't a lot of people making records because it was such a process in those days, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they told me about the place in Hamilton that was friendly to songwriters and had a couple of good people working there. And uh, so I went down and uh, did a couple of demo sessions and figured, oh, you know, I could probably make a record. And the, the, the guy at one of the clubs was starting to take me on as kind of a manager. He was trying to manage me a little bit and organized a way for me to make, generate enough income that I could um, pay for a record. And so then I worked towards that, finished that record uh, traveled around, sold it out of the boxes at the end of the sets, you know. What was the record? It was called Desperate Cosmetics. It was a, um, just a sort of a collection of of uh, whatever I'd managed to get through the strainer at the time. And were you, you know, we haven't even touched upon this, uh, but you are a renowned uh, producer now. You work with lots of people. Um circle of friends and yeah. uh, and, uh, and clients and things like that and uh, were you home recording at that point no you were no, going not, into studios not really no pretty much going in cold to, stu- to studios to studio yeah go in with you know I'd, i i could see players on you know i'd be at festivals for instance i'd say oh these guys and they're you know and i figured out oh these guys can actually play really quickly they can pick up on stuff and they can write charts and they Mm -hmm. can sort of accompany you without too much trouble and you know a lot of the like percussionist drummers and bass players so i could get a you know at the festivals uh the very few that i'd played i you know i approached a couple of guys and they were completely open to playing with anyone because it's work you know and um uh, so yeah, I went in with a group of players, got the records done, the first record done, and uh, sold it out and figured out, well, I could just put this towards the next record because I had a lot of new ideas that I thought I'd really like to try now that I know how yeah, the studio yeah. kind of works, you know. And uh, so that record, the following record, which is called Serious Interference, was uh, another completely independent thing. But a couple of radio stations had gotten it. I think it must have been people at gigs or something that were DJs, you know, yeah. that were just passionate about music. It started playing it on a couple of stations in Toronto. And that sort of got the antenna up of other labels because it was, you know, Canadian gold. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so... So you started to get attention, and what was the the first label was was a Duke Duke Street Records. Duke Street yeah. Records. Mm. What was that? I don't even know what that is. What, what you know? Uh, so like a, they were sort of a going concern in the eighties. Their their main thing 
that they developed a name around was uh, Jane Sibri's Records. Oh, of course. Okay, yeah. So I, I, it sounded familiar, but I'm like, what is that? I, I, you know, there's so many little record labels. But yeah, yeah, no, okay. and it, yeah, and it's it's all it's hard for any like you know I'm sure mm-hmm. with uh, the landscape has changed so much. You forget how much rarer it was then for a, there to be a little label. There were yeah. only a couple of them around. And rarer for people to make records in their homes and things yeah. like that too, I imagine. It Completely. Just, there was this separation. You know, one of the great advances of independent culture, I think, was this sense of like you, anyone can do this. For better or for worse, anyone can yeah. do this. But I think probably when you were coming up, there was this mysticism to being on a label. Like the industry was set up to make it seem like it was done by people who knew what they were doing yes behind the curtain yeah, yeah. so yeah, you don't want to get involved in the recording you don't want to get involved in putting out your own records it's too much, too much you need work. us to do it yeah and eventually obviously that has shifted well, i was sort of con- convinced of that myself to be honest yeah. like i was i was convinced that uh this is too much work to do like uh i was you know in order to sell records I would have to um, go to warehouses and, you know, like, there was Sam's in Toronto mm-hmm. would had uh, Robinson's with their distributor. So I'd go to this, those places and, you know, anytime they called, I'd have to deliver a couple more boxes of records. So I'd have to get in my van and drive to Toronto, deliver a couple boxes. And, you know, I'd had a uh, uh, thing where I'd, record stores would call for records directly you know small independent yeah, yeah, yeah. stores and you'd have to drive and consign records at those places <laughs> go back and check the, them the next month and make sure they had right records so it was a uh, it was like i really did honestly feel like I, I, this is not what i really want to do you know like that whole part of it started taking up a lot of time yeah so the label seemed like a godsend when they started to poke their you know poke the stick and through the fence it felt like yeah this is a a real logical way to try to get back to just playing music yeah i'm actually making the thing and you ended up working with uh, irs which was a subsidiary of a major label or they put out rem records yeah that's rem was their main thing at the time i think uh miles uh Copeland, yeah, this the guy, Stuart Copeland's brother. Yeah, yeah. Did you interact much with Miles? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and mostly, I dealt with a guy there, Jay Boberg, who was uh, was a really good guy, and okay. he went on to to uh, Universal in Los Angeles, which who you know, and when he went there, he called me. This was years later, and did the last record uh, on MCA. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so. What what did you do with IRS? What record did you make? I made a record called Violet and Black. And was the experience a good one? Um, it, I wouldn't describe it as the best experience because I like I did I do feel okay about the final recording. Uh, I know I felt really strongly about it at the time, but it was um, it was a pretty bleak um, to my. Uh, I really got to the point where I was thinking, okay, now I'll just try to write in a more of a documentary kind of style, even if it was sort of like you're saying, uh, 
fantastic or something. <laughs> I was trying to uh, fantastic in the sense of like you know otherworldly. Yeah, I was really trying to write about Violet and Black was really trying to write about the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and uh, at that point, Branford was in pretty rough shape, right. and my neighborhood was in rough shape, and uh, I was losing a lot of you know it was all the casualties that go along with um, that sort of culture when it starts to get ugly so um i tried to write more about that without being too hopeless about it yeah yeah so it's a dark record and i think in a lot of ways it built its own karmic thing because of that the songs were like that the recording was done in a lot of it was done in los angeles and i was john had been just was just born oh okay and i was away for months on end making this record with uh Arthur Barrow in um, Los Angeles, and uh, and it was very unreal and uh, uh, sort of a disturbing period of time. So I don't have the best feelings about that record, to be honest. Were these the sessions that included Adrian Ballou of King Crimson? Uh, no, th- th- this was another. There was a record after. There's a record between Serious Interference and Oh, sorry. called Gravity is Mutual. Right, of course. That right. was done for uh that was a Duke Street record. And that was done with Roma Baron. That was a fun record to make because it was the the band that I had at the time. We'd been plenty, you know, was, when the stuff started working out with um when I first uh, when that, when the whoever those DJs were in Toronto that were <laughs> spinning the record, whenever they started doing that, I started getting these nicer offers in Toronto to play. I could actually get a real band together and start playing kind of like what the records actually were. Yeah, yeah. And that was exciting. So that band actually coalesced eventually. And uh, in time, that Duke Street uh, for that signing in that first record. So that was a nice record to make. Well, how do you come to work with? Adrian Ballou. Uh, Roma Barron was the producer. Um, she was someone I, I, around the time I'd heard Laurie Anderson for the first time, mm. she, I thought was fan, really fantastic. It was like late night radio uh, at my little apartment in Brantford in the hovel. And it was like, uh, you know, another one of those kind of Stanley Plachenic moments. Yeah, key moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and she uh, she knew Adrian. Uh, well, so I I immediately went out and checked out what Laurie Anderson was about. Again, no internet or anything, so it's a little bit of a process. You know, you have to order the record and then uh, wait and then listen and then uh, read the liner notes and then uh, inquire. And I so I inquired after her producer, who is Roma Baron, who is an ex. Pat Canadian oh, okay. living in New York and uh, hooked up with her for the record. She was uh, great mm-hmm. and uh, she was, because of Laurie Anderson, was acquainted with a whole circle of musicians that um, some of them came into the project for a few tracks. Okay, okay. So it wasn't like Adrian was necessarily a big fan or, or anything? No, no, just... no, no. It was, it was you know, Roma calling a favor, paying him the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> was it cool for you? Oh, oh yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. Are you kidding? It was like a, it was a, it was really great. It was another, it was just a great, a lot of really good stuff around that record as far as um, just the way and the lights that came on during the process of making it. Uh, one of them was was for sure working with Adrian Blue, 
where um, the whole chaos thing was. Yeah, his his management of chaos was fantastic, <laughs> and and it was you know especially if we'd done all the bed tracks. Everybody's kind of precious, you know, about yeah 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 how to do things, and he would come and he just start slapping his pedals on the floor, you know, <laughs> and his had a you know. Uh, crazy stuff coming out of the speakers and he didn't know what half of it was you know i mean the first sound it was i remember was like 10 o'clock in the morning for this session it took like a couple of hours for him to get the rig happening because uh it was sort of hilarious but uh, yeah so it took a couple hours to get the rig going but when he did the first thing he hit was this strange combination of it's like a Sounded kind of like a dentist drill, <laughs> and, and, he, and he just sort of slapped it on top of these tracks, you know. And uh, I, and I was just sort of like, I don't know, <laughs> like, I don't know. And Rome was sort of smiling and looking at me, saying, "This is great, this is great." I'm sort of like, I don't know, Roma. <laughs> and Adrian sort of up on his chair. He was up on his chair looking. Then coming up to Roma with the end of his guitar, saying "Good morning," <laughs> putting, putting like the, a rifle. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like a rifle in the. Well, more like a. I thought like a dentist drill. Like okay, good morning. You say you say sweet. dentist drill. I say rifle. I mean, that's a various <laughs> levels of safety there. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so but it was a thing of of uh, working with people that were would would manage chaos. Yeah, in those situations, like, I can see you being attracted to that. Totally, being yeah. kind of into the chaos, uh, and and yet that again, again that management of the chaos. I can see you being like, it's cool to harness the unknown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so the, he had a high batting average. Yeah, in, you know the the stuff of what he could do. Yeah, and I mean, it's not that you know. I mean, other people I'd work with were in into those sorts of things, like with you know making devices to exaggerate tones and things and uh so i it wasn't completely foreign or something but it was great to see it just happening with a guitar yeah and a guy with a big smile on his face because he's just enjoying enjoying it yeah. shock value of what he's doing you know? <laughs> it's been um 12 years i think since is it yeah the detour home yeah. came out which is your last record and yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure I, if it's a capital L or a little L for last. But yeah. Oh well. Oh really? Well, I, I often wonder, you know, whether whenever I finished something, I always thought, I don't know. <laughs> what uh, you've been obviously busy working with other people, but mm -hmm. what uh, what stage are you at in terms of making your own music? I like, did finish an, another last record. <laughs> uh, I did finish a record, and uh, I've sort of, yeah. So that that that's, I don't know how to elaborate on it too much. When did you finish it? Uh, on Friday. Sorry, this past Friday. Yeah. <laughs> it's a couple of days ago. Yeah. You finished your last record, your I most recent so. record. I think so. Yeah. How long have you been working on it? Uh, since probably Tuesday or so. <laughs> 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 you started it on Tuesday and you finished it on Friday. Yeah, I think so. 
Is it a pretty sparse affair? <laughs> no, I actually, I'll be, I should be <laughs> honest about it. I can't, I cannot tell a lie. <laughs> I, I, I started it maybe a year ago. It started in between projects, mm-hmm. just doing this thing. The whole ukulele, uh, I went back to ukulele and started kicking around these real simple little ideas and thinking, oh, there's a real simple little project to do. And, of course, you know, it's never as simple as it looks at the outset. Right. right. So it's, it's, that's the, still in there, I think, is the nugget of this sort of attempt to be really simplify and to have, um, uh, be more essential in everything and and I, I really don't I'm still not sure why uh, what I'm going to do with it I know why I did it but I don't really know what I'm going to do about it now know? when you say you don't know what you're going to do about it does that have to do with you're not sure what the demand might be for it yeah I think that's part of it and you know I mean it's the I've I've always really enjoyed the making of stuff, and I think most artists I know are like this. You mm-hmm. know, that we love making stuff, but the the but the work behind justifying it by selling it, like you know, um, distribution. Yes, and, yes, yes. All the stuff we covered s- earlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the business side is is not fun. No, they've never been great bedfellows and. Yeah, I hear you. In uh, my life, anyways, and I, and I see it in all all my friends. You know, the amazing artists to me are. It's amazing to me when I see artists that can do everything. Like yeah, they yeah. cover the whole thing. It just makes me more uh, appreciative of what you know. Holy crow! You know, say what you want about you know the commerciality of this person, but yeah. it's amazing to me that they do all these things. Yeah, and they dance and yeah. they sing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They're doing it all. They're covering all the bases. Okay, so that notwithstanding, like, what can you tell me anything about your headspace around these songs? If if you see things coming through in them now that you've reflected, did you literally finish it on Friday? Yeah. I did actually just finish. I did the last mix on Friday. And was it okay? I'm, I I don't know how much I want to get into because I don't want to spoil surprises for anyone who's going to eventually hear it. But yeah. I do. I'm curious about at this point what you th- maybe can you give us a sense of maybe what's going on on the record in terms of maybe lyrically, tonally. Uh. Yeah, I. I, um, I guess it's start with it's simple right i wanted it to be simple and essential feeling and uh a couple of you know a few years back we found uh when we were sorting out my mother-in-law's estate Mm. her house after she passed away we found a ukulele under her bed that didn't make any sense to us at all because she just wasn't a ukulele player by our vision of her and um that so i just you know we what the heck i'll take it home and and i shortly after that we went to um, an island and i took it with me and just because i could get it on carry-on luggage and 
the um, I was sort of amazed at how simple and f complete things were whenever I picked it up. You know, it could, I felt like I felt like it could play for a couple of minutes, but it felt like it was something complete just happened. And huh. it, you know, it was a very unusual uh, feeling. Had you played um, much ukulele before? The ukulele chords and things are a bit different than maybe a, what you a little bit different. Uh, you know, and the the uh, the shapes are kind of the same uh, as guitar. Yeah. So you could get away, with, you know, and that's part of it too. Is you don't is it just playing? You're playing by ear, so a lot of it is the intuition of yeah. a new instrument, which yeah. is always sort of an exciting thing. Yeah. Oh, so you had before this, you hadn't much played the ukulele. I played the uke when I was shortly after the pie plate. Oh, right, right, right. So, you know, it, it but nothing to, you know, barely worth mentioning right. at that point. Um, okay. So anyways, so that that was really the start of the idea of the of the record, which is going back a few years yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought, oh, it'd be neat to just write a bunch of songs with this very simple little instrument. But it didn't turn out to be quite that simple, you know. Right. It's, so it's mostly f feels, the record feels more like a, a trio or a quartet, but what those other instruments are is highly could be kind of a, uh, interpretive. <laughs> you, you know, you don't know what that third instrument is sometimes, but it is like a, kind of to my ear, it's like a three-piece or four-piece at its biggest, and uh, one in, one person at its smallest. Uh, you know. Okay. Does that help? It does, and and so did the experience of discovering the ukulele, and you know that's a heavy thing to discover <laughs> that someone you knew for a long time and quite well had this thing under, hidden under her bed that is out of character, or, or at least of your perception of her. Mm. Does that inspire anything going on on the record, or is that too specific? No, <laughs> that, that's too, that one would be too too specific uh no i i think um it's it's a difficult one to talk about i i know very specifically what the record is about but you do. I, I i i uh i um part of the thing is uh i wanted to um sort of couch the ideas you know what i mean i wanted yeah, yeah. The, i wanted them to be sort of not uh, zeros and ones as far as description goes, you know. I wanted it to be a, uh, like, I guess, like you're saying, is, is this, uh, when you're describing other things, maybe it's the same pattern of, of uh, um, there's a narrative, but it's, I've always thought of it as like a flip book narrative, you know, it's sort of like these images that you line up and you flip and then, oh, there's a story. It's there's like, a through line there. But you're, I see. I think I understand what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's. I know it sounds very no, abstract. No. I, I'm sort of. I sound like I'm kind of avoiding it, and I kind of am because I, I. I had the experience recently of talking to someone about their forthcoming album, and we went through this exercise of them going through the meaning of each and every song before anyone's heard it. Right. And on one level, I was really excited that he agreed to do this because it's a highly anticipated record. But I'm, in retrospect, I'm like, did we just ruin the record for everyone right. who is going to come at it fresh? And I actually appreciate the fact that you just finished a record a few days ago 
and you want to let it sit with people rather than over explain it. Mm. I assume if and when you end up doing some press or something about it, it might come out. People might ask you the right questions. I'm talking about a thing I have not heard a note of. Yeah, right. So maybe, yeah, I totally see where you're coming from, and I can't wait to hear it and make my own calls and then bother you on the phone and be like, hey, this is what I think is going on. And you can be like, no, you're wrong. Yeah, I'd be be probably a little bit more comfortable with that one. Yeah. Yeah. That that stage. Okay. Well, you know, when and if, yeah. On behalf of... uh, Scott Merritt fans everywhere I can say you know we've obviously it's exciting news well I'm, I hope I'll, you figure I'll out what to do with it hope you both get a copy of it <laughs> hope you can both <laughs> that's how I feel about this show sometimes <laughs> oh you, people are like oh it's great I'm like oh so you're the one you're the one listening to the show <laughs> I uh, I can't tell you how excited that, and, and so you're playing the show in Guelph yes on the uh, that I helped put together on the uh, 11th of September at mm. the E-Bar and you're playing in a duo yeah you, Jeff Bird and I yeah Mm-hmm. And is Jeff on the record? Jeff's on the record. Okay. Yeah, upright bass. So will you be playing these, some of these new songs? Yeah. Uh, you know, chances are the all, if not, you know. Wow. Probably all the wow. songs will it's be represented. Be... I mean, I won't be playing the whole record, but I'll be playing all the songs that uh, will be in the set will be from the record, I'm guessing, just because I'm generally that way <laughs> that's great no i just i don't have much uh i like to be doing stuff that i'm doing as opposed to stuff i've done as much as possible that's really exciting i can't wait to this is make makes it even more amazing because it's a rare i think there's a perception anyway that it's a rare thing to see you play mm. live you're you're pretty uh you know it's not something you do that often no which is good you know i think you that's good i feel like you're following a path and it is what it is. Yeah, that's. I I don't feel like I have much choice in it. There's a lot of ways. I just yeah. sort of have to let it do, uh, let it become what it wants to become or not, you know. And uh, that's the way it's just has to be that way at this point of the game. Well, that's great. I can't wait. That makes it even more exciting. No, not to disparage any of your older material. I'd like to love to hear it, obviously. <laughs> but the fact that we're getting, you know, this nice premiere of. A whole batch of new stuff. That's great. I'm happy for you. Oh, well, thanks, Vish. Now, I hate to put you on the spot. Normally, at this point, I would ask the artist uh, or guest on my show if they have music or something, if we can play something. And, you know, we could go back to some of your old stuff, but is there something new we can play for folks? Yeah. As to, uh, 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 I'd be game for that. Oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> um, Does your album have a name? No, it doesn't okay. at this point. Okay. Do the uh, songs have names? I I think most of them have names. Okay. Well, I could. I'll, I'm not sure what song I can give you still that uh, would may be most of use to you, but um, uh, maybe this song that called "Ever Will," which is um, about um, this idea of a parade that has no beginning and no end <laughs> that that one maybe a parade that has no beginning or that's amazing uh, i like that idea uh, wait a minute i also don't there's a possibility that that is nothing a parade that has no beginning or no wait is that life never mind i'm not going <laughs> to interpret the because that sounds a lot like life to me but i'm not going to have some kind of critical assessment of the thing you just said i'm just going to like everyone very excitedly enjoy 
ever will, and we'll give it a shot. Thanks, Vish. Is that cool? That's good, yeah. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> Scott, it was uh, really, you know, I've known you a long time, and I learned more about you in the last hour. We talk a lot, I think. Yeah. You know, we try to, and but this is that's very revealing i appreciate the chat and i wish you the obviously good luck with everything and yeah thanks really excited to see you appreciate your interest (laughs) 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 brass bands marching floats Trumpets and labor day They're all lit up As it ever would
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.